You're listening to the Blue Box Podcast, and for the next 60 minutes, we're going to be talking about Doctor Who, so you don't have to. Simon. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm JR. And this week we're back to discuss the Peter Capaldi story arcs, the story arcs during the three Peter Capaldi series. Um, before we do, I've got a film, even though we've only recorded three days ago, I've right. watched a review film in that time. Okay. Has anybody been to the cinema this weekend? No. No. So we've not got anything else to add. I watched a good proportion of Isle of Dogs. Oh yes, because it's out on Blu-ray now. Well, isn't I did. It? I did fall asleep two thirds of the way through. Well, there's your review. We, that's what happens when you watch a film in the afternoon with your children. And I was amazed actually at how much how they got sucked in. My my uh, nine year old Freya absolutely adored it. So she was telling me about it afterwards. So she oh. her review is that it she was a brilliant film. She spoiled it for you. Not, no, no, because I caught the end. Uh-huh. I caught the end. Hmm. But uh, no, it is it is beautiful as you'd expect. And apparently a big improvement on Fantastic Mr. Fox. Ooh, in what respects? Well, I don't know. I've just read that, although Mr. Fo- Fantastic Mr. Fox is fantastic, Yeah, I've heard that this has just got a lot more to it. Yes. Yeah, there's a lot more grit to it, a lot more depth to it. And uh, yeah, yeah. It's, well, Fantastic Mr. Fox, it's Fantastic Mr. Fox is, uh, I don't know, extremely visual, extremely comedic. And, um, and there's not much the... plot though, really, is there in Fantastic Mr. Fox? Not really, no, there's a lot of nice little, nice little, it's like vignettes, moments. yes, yeah. exactly, yeah, yeah, rather than and there a story. are in this, to be honest, but um, but yeah, there is a really good story in the at the back of it all. Performances are great, the animation is, yeah, it's just well, just, just as good as it was in Fantastic Mr. Fox, and um, what I was gonna say, really. It's, it's fairly dark. Vignettes is sort of Wes Anderson's thing, though, isn't it? Like, yeah, but usually... Sort of... But if you look at things like Rushmore and, well, Mag- uh, the uh, Royal Tenenbaums to an extent, the vignettes add up to a story, mm. to a trajectory, mm. whereas Fantastic Mr. Fox sort of didn't. Well, I guess it sort of it's did. It's a heist but... movie. Yeah, but... It... That was kind of that was kind of just an extended vignette, really, mm. wasn't it? Mm. it? Itself, yeah. They're, they're funny, though, funny sort of films where you you kind of you come into it when things are already underway. Mm-hmm. There isn't really a beginning, yeah, to that. I mean, you get a little bit of a prologue, don't you, at the start? But other than that, you kind of come into the Fox family's life, and it ends in kind of in that way as well, doesn't it? it feels kind of open ended. Hmm. But um, yeah, no, this is very much um, quite a kind of dystopian thing. But uh, yeah, as I say, as I say, I was quite surprised that the children enjoyed it as much as they did. I thought they might find it a little bit too dark, but no, they really, really liked it. Well, I watched a YA film from New Zealand called The Changeover, mm-hmm. which is about a girl who's sixteen whose dad has committed suicide. And whose mother works all the hours she can. So the girl is essentially in charge of her five-year-old brother. But she's what's called a sensitive. <clears throat> so she keeps picking up signals or whatever, warning her that he's in trouble. And then he is in trouble. <coughs> and this is where the book probably really worked, but the film really sort of doesn't. So she meets this guy called Brack. Played by, um, oh, God, name's completely gone out of my head. Played by an English actor, anyway, a well-known one that everybody would recognise, who, it transpires, is this ancient creature who lives by putting a mark on children and then feeding off their energy. And so he sort of gets eternal life by just 
keeping the child alive long enough to feed off its energy and then preying on the next one. So he preys on this girl's little brother, Jacko. And uh, then the rest of the film is she hooks up with this new guy at school who's this really brooding guy, just like Edward Cullen out of Twilight. And Well, this is all from the novel. Mm. And the novel came out, oh God, 20 years before Twilight, 25 years before Twilight. Mm. So if anything, Twilight would have got it from this. Mm. But it is extremely Stephanie Meyer. But as these things go, it's a lot faster moving than the Twilight movies. And I suppose you'd probably say it's a lot more honest or maybe has a bit more integrity than the Twilight stories. And the central thing of it is, because this guy's a witch, and they work out that this guy's like this leech who's feeding on the life force of children, she has to undergo this thing called the changeover to turn Mm. into a witch, so she's got enough power to take the child back off him. And it's basically a big metaphor for going through adolescence and reaching maturity, essentially. So it's all very on the nose. It's filled with metaphors, like there's a black cat. Oh, and there's butterflies form a big part of it. Of course, butterflies, chrysalis, another metaphor for change and development. It's all very on the nose, but it's very well done. The acting in it is excellent. If you've got, if you can stomach YA stuff, then um, you'd probably enjoy it. It's not a great film, and the fact that it does the novel so literally means that on the screen it's and it takes itself very seriously like twilight so on the screen it's basically lots of really serious people talking to each other really seriously about utter nonsense which makes it come across a bit stupid Mm. but well i watched it with a 19 year old who normally if i put a film on will be on the games console or on the phone and after about half an hour, she turned them both off and just sat and watched the rest of it. So that's got to be some kind Job of done. Yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, got to be some kind of recommendation, hasn't it? It's funny as you were describing it; it sounded <clears> like an episode from some kind of anthology series, as opposed to well, it was a whole feature. Apart from the fact that it's Australian accents and it's and the filming on it, it's very nicely filmed, and shot, and edited, and that made it look more expensive than it was. Apart from that, it could have been an episode of Class, frankly. Mm. Shall we talk some Doctor Who then? Okay. So, the Peter Capaldi story arcs. (laughs) And of course, the first thing, really, that Stephen Moffat does in that first year, and we've talked about this at length, but we'll do it all in one episode together now. Okay. But the first thing that Stephen Moffat does is he says, this is a brand new Doctor in a brand new regeneration cycle that he wasn't expecting to happen and that he didn't ask for. So he does the crisis of confidence thing, doesn't he? Mm -hmm. So in that first series, you've got Clara, who was already there, so she's kind of the continuity factor. And we talked about her in the Matt Smith as being, well, they call her control freak in deep breath. But obviously that's a simplification But she's somebody who likes to be in control of things and having a brand new Doctor when she can barely remember the things that happen in the name of the Doctor. Because, of course, in the name of the Doctor, most of what happens that we see her doing is her offshoot personalities. Mm. So it's not the Clara we know that meets all these other Doctors. Mm. She sort of sees them in passing in that sort of central spot in the name of the Doctor at the end. But she doesn't actually meet any of them. So she's freaked out. Because there is a perception, isn't there? I'm sure I've seen people in discussion groups. There's a perception that somehow she should remember everything that her her splinters have done. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's ridiculous. No. No, she doesn't... She's not met and doesn't know any of the other Doctors apart from the ones in the day of the Doctor. Mm. And of course, even if you know that something like a regeneration is possible, that doesn't mean that when it happens, it's still not a shock. Yeah. And it's still Mm. not something you've got to get used to. So the elements in that first series are Clara getting used to the fact that the Doctor's changed, the Doctor getting used to the fact that he's still alive when he wasn't expecting to be, and I likened this at some point, and I can't remember whether it was in the column or on the podcast, I likened it to being 
told, I don't know, you go to the doctors and the doctor says you've got advanced cancer, you've got two days to live, you reconcile yourself to it. And then at the end of two days, the doctor says, oh, I made a mistake or oh, mm. we've found a cure. And suddenly you've got 40 years ahead of you instead mm. of two days. Mm. And what you would do if you got to that point where you were right on the very brink of death and then suddenly got another 40 years, you'd stop and question yourself, wouldn't you? You'd mm. stop and question your place in the world. You'd stop and question your right to live. I was going to say, yeah, there's a certain amount of guilt I would have thought would kick in as well. Yeah, all these things. Mm. And these are all the things, without doing it sort of really ostentatiously, because he never actually says, I'm having a new life crisis oh, I shouldn't be alive, so I feel guilty about the fact that I am, without actually stopping and having these conversations on screen, that patently, to me, is what the Peter Capaldi Doctor is doing for those first few episodes for that first series. And also it's about... So the way these things work is, in a in a series, they reach a point of excess where they can't go any further and then they have to rein it all back in. To, they go back to basics so you see it in Bond films as a sort of a cycle and usually in Doctor Who you'd get that with a change of showrunners this time mm. you get that with a change of Doctors yeah but in this in this place the, the excess the excess is the Doctor discovering who he is in the day of the Doctor and then enacting who he who he is in time of the Doctor because day of the Doctors when when he gets together with two other doctors and they basically have a long conversation about what the doctor what does. the nature yeah. of being a doctor yeah. is and what does the, what the doctor does and then uh time of the doctor he basically is that doctor for Millet- however uh, long, hundreds, of, how, years, hundreds yeah. of years and so that's the excess when you've you've fully unpacked what the doctor is what the nature of the doctor is and then the only way to go from there is deep breath where you strip that back and you actually start questioning that. And then by stripping it back, then you, you get even deeper under the skin of what the Doctor is. Because you see a Doctor who's not that, briefly. Mm. Or for a few, at least a few. Or maybe for us, I suppose. Well, essentially, it goes up to episode 12, Death in Heaven, where he has that speech, for want of a better word. People always call them speeches. They're not really speeches, they're just <laughs> one-sided conversations. Yeah. Or he has the speech where he says, I know what I am, I'm an idiot yeah. with a box, and this is what I do. And that's the point at which the Peter Capaldi doctor reconciles himself. Mm. But of course, the thing that brings him there and brings him to reconcile himself is the other story arc, or story arcs, because there are about four or five different things going on through this series. One of which is Missy, and the other one is Danny Pink. Which one do you want to unpack first, Missy or Danny Pink? Probably Danny Pink would be simpler. You can get through Danny Pink a bit. Well, Danny Pink comes in as Clara's secret boyfriend. Now, this is really interesting, because Doctor Who's never done this before. But if you look at Clara's character in Series 7B, where she says, right, I want you to pick me up at such and such a time. I want you to drop me home afterwards. I want to continue having my life. And there is an episode in 7B, the one everybody likes to forget, Nightmare in Silver, where she brings those two things together. She brings her life together with her life with the Doctor by bringing the two children on board. Mm -hmm. And of course, they're instantly put in peril. And actually, that story kind of wastes them a bit. But the idea is there that by bringing her home life into contact with her TARDIS life, she puts her home life in peril. So Stephen Moffat takes that sort of kernel of an idea and expands it across the whole of uh, Series 8 mm-hmm. by bringing in Danny Pink. Mm. So it's an extension of that idea that she has a home life and a TARDIS life that are two entirely distinct things that becomes Danny Pink, where she actually gets into a relationship that she deliberately keeps not secret, but entirely distinct. And the only way to keep it entirely distinct from the Doctor is by not telling the Doctor about it. Because as we've seen in Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who before, particularly in Series 5, the moment Matt Smith's Doctor finds out about Rory, he goes and fetches him. Mm. And if 
Clara had said to, um, you know, Peter Capaldi's doctor during Listen, which is the point at which this would have happened, this is my boyfriend, this is the guy I'm seeing. Well, the next thing is Danny Pink would have been... Possibly. Well, um, yeah. I mean, and you, yeah. Get the, you get the feeling Matt Smith went and picked up Rory to defuse yes. Amy. Yeah. To stop Amy from... <laughs> yeah. Because he recognised that Amy was pressing but, her. I think if you think about Mickey, Mickey's a good comparison with, with Danny Pink. Christopher because, Eccleston invites yeah. him aboard in uh, World War Three. It's Mickey who says yes. no. Yeah. But, but the point I'm making yeah. is, if the Doctor and Danny are introduced properly in Listen, mm. then the standard thing for the series to do is to have Danny as a travelling companion, which again, yeah. Mickey eventually does become. Yeah. And Danny and uh, Captain Jack at the end of series one mm. is another example of that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. It's regardless of what you're doing with the characters, it's the standard thing the series does and the series would work the characters around it to make it happen. Mm. Unless you're telling the story about it not happening. And it's also it's also a way of tethering Clara to the earth in a way that it's more defined. That Amy was never quite tethered yeah. and certainly Rose was completely untethered. So it's another it's another variation of that that sort of companion. And so you've got, it's not her, it's not the way she leaves, but it's it's her conflict while she's on the TARDIS between, as you say, keeping her home life and keeping her TARDIS life separate. And it's also a sitcom. Yes. I mean, it is a, a kind of a classic farce, farce, farcical opportunity because you have her trying to balance. I mean, I, I think it's, is it in The, the Caretaker where they have almost literally scenes of people running in and out of rooms yeah, yeah. concealing themselves from one another. Well, it's classic Stephen Moffat territory. She goes into a cupboard, in, oh, and maybe it's inside the Dalek, where she goes into a cupboard and disappears for a while. Oh, it happens lots of yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's classic Stephen Moffat joking apart territory. Yeah, yeah. And coupling as well, of course. Yeah. So it's not, it's not something that's out of his comfort zone. And those sitcom elements... And there's also another one where she's in, she's in a restaurant. I'm trying to remember. This is listen. Yeah. So it's it's a way of getting the companion into the story without it becoming repetitive, without it becoming the companion goes where where are we going next, Doctor? Yeah. Or exactly. where would you like to go next, companion? It's a way of sort of uh, filling that time between the start of the episode and the start of the adventure in a kind of a different way. Yeah, and it's also a way of getting her out of it at the end as well. Yeah. So that yeah. when an episode finishes, you don't just have the doors on the TARDIS closing and the theme music mm. crashing in or whatever. Yeah. Um, uh, does it really work? I th- I'm not entirely sure it does on account of the fact, and we talked about this while Series 8 was on, but there's a lot of we see only the important junctures and no relationship so it's difficult to get a handle on whatever chemistry they might have mm. whether they have any because we're not we don't we don't really get to see the quiet moments between clara and danny but but also i was saying that it's a way of getting into the story in a different way but there's a reason why you want to get into the story by having an explosion and you want to be right yeah. at the heart of the action in this way, in that series, it got into the story in a slightly sort of comedic, farcical, domestic way. Yeah, yeah. And that's less, less exciting. Yeah. So I can I can respect it, and I sometimes like it, but they seem to start off slowly. So my least favorite story is the caretaker, which kind of has that opening and it keeps it going throughout with a slightly well, natural robot. Episode, yeah. And I just don't. I don't see a I don't see a Doctor Who story there. I, I see a sort of a, a sort of cycle of opening scenes that don't go anywhere. Well, it is that's the one yeah. episode that doesn't really. Well, I mean, it obviously, like you say, it has the robot, but it doesn't really develop into but, a Doctor Who story. It develops into a companion story that has Doctor Who elements rather than the other way around. But where it does work for me, because obviously that's all the domestic, and that's that's sort of not a traditional traditional mode for Doctor Who where it does work is at the end of Danny Pink because he doesn't go out initially with a bang he goes out just out of off camera 
in a car accident. Yeah, yeah. Which is at the beginning of the story, which is yeah. another one of these domestic moments you expect. You've been kind of lulled into a false sense of security with all the farcical kind of light romantic beginnings so that when he does get hit by hit by a car it's, a real it's shock. like yeah it's yeah. like one of those shocking mm-hmm. moments it's like the episode of press gang where one of the the major characters dies because press gang is a fairly light children's yeah, children's yeah. story and then suddenly you have you have one episode where something really terrible happens i think it's called something terrible happens or something really? like that and it's really kind of it really hits you in the stomach because you've been pre-programmed not to not expect, to expect it. it. Yeah, mm-hmm. somewhat ironic as well, though. Um, and I know it kind of facilitates the story, but uh, the fact that Danny Pink's been protected to a certain degree from life on the TARDIS, mm. Clara probably trying to protect him from keeping him away from that sort of lifestyle. Yeah, and then he gets hit by a car. Yeah, yeah, yeah. which it's is a sort of well, philosophical thing, really, mm. as well, isn't it? Yeah, and you don't see it. It's yeah. hit by a car off screen. Mm. It's the most kind of low key death, I guess, that mm. you can have. Although he comes back. But wow. um, yeah. But he comes yeah, he comes back as a dead person. Mm. Well this is the thing. A bit like the brigadier. Well yeah. Well No, I'm not gonna <laughs> Well that's not nothing to do with the story arc, so that's not anything that we need to bring up. No, but unless you want to. No, it is great though, isn't it? The cyber brig. It is. <laughs> it is. Yeah. It's one of the most emotional moments I've yeah. ever experienced on Doctor Who. Yeah. Danny Pink comes back. Or on, te- or on television in general, I think. Yeah, quite possibly. It's a yeah. high point. <laughs> it's a real, like, defining high point of television from Are all you... over the world, including Australia. All right. <clears throat> so, Danny Pink comes back as a dead person. All the people who come back as Cybermen yeah. come back as dead people. Mm-hmm. They're not being brought back to life. They're being resurrected as dead, like zombies. Yeah. And what the... Well, okay, we'll go into it a little bit, I guess. What Stephen Moffat's doing is he's taking things like the way religion treats death and the afterlife mm-hmm. and the way science fiction in things like things he's done himself, Silence of the Library. But, I mean, this has been something that's been going on in science fiction and pro-science fiction for decades and decades and it addresses the same thing as religion what happens to a person after they die can you trap their consciousness can you trap their soul i guess and so stephen moffat addresses this in death in heaven it's not something that he's never done before and it's not the last time he'll do it but death in heaven becomes then a sort of meditation on science fiction on the juncture where science fiction meets religion mm. and so the whole of i say death in heaven it's actually dark water isn't it where we're seeing all the stuff with danny pink in the nether sphere but it that, that is the whole question of what happens to you after you die and stephen moffat is kind of saying it doesn't matter what you believe or what you'd like to believe he's kind of saying you know if you want to believe it fine and fair enough is kind of what that story's saying. Um, but before we go any further into any of that, we should do Missy then. Okay. So Missy turns up at the end of the first episode, very last scene of the very first episode. She suddenly turns up out of nowhere. We've no idea who she is, mm. but she's capturing dead people. Mm. Well, the obvious. Well, we is... don't even know that, do we? Because <clears throat> we don't know whether it's the afterlife or anything. Do we? Oh no, but I mean. Yeah. I'm talking yeah, yeah. with the knowledge of what happens later. Say, welcome to heaven or something like that. Mm. Yeah, something so like that. So she strongly suggests that she's God in some way. Yeah, yeah. Or God's gatekeeper. But the really odd thing is, the first one she collects is a robot. Yeah. So actually that scene's appended to the end of Deep Breath. It should have been held over for the following week. For her to capture a living person first. Well, there's a cyborg. Just sorry, I know we've discussed this before, but we ascertained: did the doctor throw him off, or did he just he threw himself? We never off? found out. We never found out. No, that was always kept ambiguous. No, that's another running theme of that that series. Mm. You never. There's lots of sort of moments of ambiguity throughout where you don't quite know which way which way Stephen Moffat is going and which way the doctor's going. Mm, mm. it's the question of am I a good man 
Mm. She doesn't ask until the following week, but we've already seen... Well, that's entirely the point. We've already seen the previous week an incident where he may not be a good man. So when he asks it the following week, that's the point at which we're supposed to say, well, I'm not quite sure anymore. And that's the point at which we're supposed to realise that we really are watching a new life crisis. Mm. It's a bit like Invasion of Time, but stretched out across across an entire season. It's the, the, the best, the only good bit of Invasion of Time is you start to think, well, has, has Tom Baker yeah. gone bad or not? And they muff it. They sort of fluff it and they have a really awful closing to it. But that single idea, has the Doctor gone bad, mm. was actually really exciting. And sustains four episodes yeah. really well. Yeah. <coughs> so Miss, so I think the... Well, you say a cyborg, but it's supposed to be a robot inside. Yeah. With human body parts on the outside. Mm. But the brain, which is the bit that she's harvesting, mm. is robot. Yeah, yeah. Because they're supposed to be related to the clockwork droids, right? Right. So she should never have harvested that one. So that was put in merely to introduce us to Missy. Yeah. And I don't know, couldn't we have had one of the robot's victims rather than the robot himself? Mm. Would mm. have worked rather better, I think. So we get, like, various hints and teasers throughout. We don't really find out anything about Missy until about 10th episode. We're introduced also to um, Guy from Thick of It, Name Escapes Me, Yeah. earlier on. Oh, Chris Addison. Chris Addison. So it's not just Missy, but Chris Addison as well. Mm. Um, But, I mean, all of that's fairly irrelevant going through the series we just see hints and teasers at it until you get to the end of the series and we talked about this when we discussed the episode so I shan't go into it too deeply but Stephen Moffat's made the master a woman and and I he defines her new personality by having her do something that none of the male masters ever did the male masters were all intent, and this is this comes down to gender generalizations. But I mean, gender generalizations were always true for the classic series. So the only way you can really counter them is by doing the opposite in the new series. But in the classic series, the, the master was always about conquest or destruction. It was always about strong arm tactics, and the the points at the end of. Terror of the Autons, where he joins up with the Doctor, and Claws of Axos, where he joins up with the Doctor, are only because he's been forced into a corner. Mm. And, you know, ten years later, Legopolis makes a blooming cliffhanger out of that when we've already seen it twice. Ten years before, so kids wouldn't have, so it's a bit of a shocker. But So the Master is all about force, really, in the classic series okay. as a male character. And you don't really get an awful lot of ambiguity around that. The only time it's even addressed is in survival, mm. with the survival of the fittest stuff. So Stephen Moffat says, right, now I've got a woman doctor. And so he brings in an ambiguity, and he brings in an entirely different motivation. So the master's motivation in Dark Water and Death and Heaven, is not to get one over on the Doctor. It's not to conquer anything. It's almost, in a way, like a friend saying, why don't you like me anymore? What can I do to make you like me? And because this character is so amoral, completely misjudges the thing that you've got to do. But we've seen all through Russell T. Davis's era, characters like Davros saying to the Doctor, you take these people and turn them into weapons. Mm. All Missy does in Series 8 is actually literally take people and turn them into weapons well, the jo- the and John, give them to the Doctor. The John Sim Master has a slightly different motivation to the to the classic series Masters. In the, the drumming in his head. He's, he's got a drumming in his head. So yeah. he's, kind of, he's kind of clumsily looking for the Doctor in order to cure him. But he doesn't know what that cure is going to be. And he assumes that cure is doing the mastery things mm. that he used to do. But actually, in the end of time, he discovers... That's when he draws forces. He isn't back necessarily backed into a corner. He's he realizes he's got where the dragon comes from. Yeah, and and so the Doctor kind of he. That's when he joins forces with the Doctor. So you get a sense more of a 
I mean, with Delgado and Pertwee, you that was that was when they started talking about the Doctor being slightly closer to the Master, but that was purely because of the the Necessity. chemistry, but, yeah. but also the chemistry between the actors yeah, and the yeah. nature of who Delgado was and the fact that he was liked and brought back a lot. But that was sort of realised, <coughs> I think, with the Sin Master <clears throat> and then played with with the with the the Missy Master. Hmm. Yeah. Any more about Series 8? I mean, we haven't touched on absolutely everything that happens, but, I mean, we did it all pretty in-depth as it was going out. Yeah. Um, Off the top of my head, as ever, I'm doing these things without notes. I don't don't think at the end of Series 8, I think the Doctor thinks he's found himself, but I think that story arc carries on. I think they they maintain that. I'm not so sure. Well, I think, I think, I think what happens is the Doctor's found himself, mm. but he already is embedded into a personality. So I yeah. think he knows what he's doing from the end of Series 8 onwards. It's just that he still has that personality, so it still looks a bit ambiguous. But don't you think in Time and Time... Is it Time and Time again? What's his last one called? Uh, Twice Upon a Time. Twice Upon a Time. Time and Time. They're all called the same thing. Uh, in Twice Upon a Time... His speech at the he's, end. He's yeah, but he's still he's still kind of resolving who he is. He's still talking about who he is, and he's still comparing. And in that one, he has the first Doctor that he can compare himself against. So it's almost like having a control experiment that you could sort of see how far he's come. But the idea there is that the twelfth Doctor is the one who does know who he is, and mm. the first one, the first Doctor, is the one who yeah. hasn't found out yet. So that, in a sense, that is the conclusion of his whole story arc. So he's not just discovered himself, he's kind of he's kind of retrofitting that. Well the point of Twice Upon a Time is to show how different Peter Capaldi is, how much more advanced and developed Peter Capaldi is to the first Doctor, mm. so that when the Doctor develops and advances again at the re- regeneration, it's less of a shock because you've seen that there's already been a big journey. Mm. So this next big stage in the journey should seem like less of a shock. That's kind of the point of that story. Um, it's worth mentioning last Christmas <coughs> in that um, the Doctor, to my mind, resolves who he is and last Christmas is the point at which you realise the fact that he's realised who he is isn't going to change what he's been like. Mm-hmm. So in last Christmas, even though he's there to solve things and save the day, and he has that bit on the sleigh at the end, and it's all a bit, you know, the Doctor gets a chance to be jolly at the end of that story, but for the rest of that story, the instant he walks out of the room, he's forgetting people's names. Yeah. So it's so to my mind, that is consolidating the fact that, despite the fact that now he knows he's a good man, and he goes out and does good things, and he goes out and solves problems and saves people, he still forgets who they are, he's mm. still got no manners. And so this is the Doctor carrying on into Series 9, is the Doctor who turns up with the intention of saving the day, but doesn't have any good manners about it. Hence, you get the cards in the second story with um, Clara. The idiot cards. Yeah, the idiot cards, which which was hilarious, (laughs) which a lot of people complained about. But I think that's... uh, I thought that's perfectly acceptable because, like I say, this Doctor settled into a personality that isn't the personal the kind of personality the Doctor would usually settle into. We knows he knows now what he what he should be. Yeah, but he has to actually learn that. He learned to be it. So this is Clara. He's he's actually so initially initially he doesn't know who he is. Then well, I think then he a... gets an idea of who he thinks he should be, but refuses to learn that. So he sees himself as as in in conflict with Clara. Well, there are two different things going on, mm. and, the, and they make this explicit in Twice Upon a Time. There's a difference between who he is and what he's like. Yeah. So the who he is is the things he does, like saving the day, like resolving the problems. But what he's like is how he goes about it and how he talks to people yeah. while he's there. And in that big speech section at the end of... Um, Twice Upon a Time, I can't remember the exact quote, but there's a quote that very definitely points out the difference between um, 
behaving kindly and being a kind person. So it says even if you can't behave like a nice person, you must always be a kind person. Yeah. So, I mean, that's there. And I think he learns who he is across the course of Series 8 yeah. before we get to Series 9. Yeah. And that's why he's able to make that speech at the end of Series 8, yeah. because he's resolved it in his head. Yeah. But I think he's doing the right thing throughout Series 8, even if sometimes it doesn't look very nice. But I think he's he's trying to learn how to be nice. So the cards, <clears throat> the cards is him trying to pick up tips on how to at least look like a nice person. Well, I think the cards are him accepting that he's not going to yeah. look like a nice person, frankly. <laughs> yeah. And well, just... I know, I don't know. They're, those scenes are played, they aren't, they aren't played as him kind of relying on Clara for the information. They're played on him trying to, because Clara's trying to, Clara's a teacher, so Clara's trying to teach him what yeah, to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're kind of, she kind of holds it off until he's sort of, they're like cue cards, basically. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is an element of that. He's trying to create habits for himself. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, the arc in Series 9 then, well, we've already... By the end of Series 7, I think, and I talked about Clara's advancement in being somebody who goes from being in control of small children Mm. to being in charge of the soldiers in Nightmare and Silver. I think her sort of trajectory right from there is that she gradually grows to be more and more and more like the Doctor. Mm -hmm. She wants to be... I've always said this. The Doctor is the one who has the keys to the TARDIS. The Companion is the one who is invited to board the Doctor's <coughs> behest. But by, in the Bells of St. John, saying to the Doctor, you can pick me up at 7 o'clock tomorrow night, that is as close as she's physically able to get. And remember, in Death in Heaven, or Dark... Yes, start of Death in Heaven, she gets a scene, or Dark Water, she gets that scene with the keys. Mm. So... The scene in Bells of St. John is as near as she's able to get without actually being in possession of the keys of being able to control the TARDIS because she says the TARDIS will be in this place at this time. We also get the double bluff of her claiming to be the Doctor. Well, later on in the series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But what I'm saying is it's been her story right from the start is that she wants to be in control of the Mm. TARDIS, right? Yeah. It's made very clear in her first episode that she gets to control yeah. where the TARDIS goes and when, at least in that on that one occasion, and that's the first chance she gets to do it. Yeah. So Series 9 becomes two things, or one thing. I think it's a... I don't think it's terribly well handled. I think a lot of the dialogue is too on the nose and makes it out to be something different from what it turns out to be. But I think actually, possibly of all the new series story arcs, the story told in series nine is the most satisfying because it's the one that marries up all the elements Mm. more neatly. So in series eight, I've just said you had about four different stories going on in parallel with each other. And they're not really anything to do with each other. They're just happening in parallel with each other. So Clara accepting the Doctor... Clara trying to keep a distinct relationship, the Doctor finding himself, and Missy turning up. Mm-hmm. They're all parallel storylines. But the Series 9 story arc is about Clara wanting to be the Doctor, and that's the personality, the character side of the story arc. Mm. And then there's always a sci-fi story arc as well. And the sci-fi story arc is, what if something comes along that's so terrible it breaks the universe. Mm. And it turns out that the thing that comes along that's so terrible that breaks the universe is Clara wanting to be like the Doctor. Because Clara... Want, and we could go through story by story, but let's jump to the point. Yeah, Clara wanting to be like the Doctor is what puts her in harm's way and face the raven. Yeah, Because she thinks by that point she's learned it, she's done it, mm. she's being it. So she just nonchalantly takes the raven Mm -hmm. in uh, the tattoo, whatever it is, in Face the Raven. That's what puts her in harm's way. And it's the Time Lords who've caused the events that allow that to happen. But it's Clara herself who makes it happen. And thus, the Doctor's... 
frustration with seeing her die is kind of uh, an omnip uh, an impotent sorry frustration mm. because you can't take it out on Clara who's actually done it because mm. she's the one who's made him who's put him into the place of grief but he can't really blame the time lords either because they might have engineered a situation in which that was able to happen but they didn't engineer the thing itself so then you get heaven sent where he spends whatever amount of time it is in nine there nine billion years or whatever, yeah. something yeah, yeah nine billion years undergoing the same mundane insignificant actions over and over and over again almost to infinity in order to keep that rage alive so that when he gets to Gallifrey he's able to use that rage to do the thing he wants to do which he needs to do which is because through series 9 we see him allowing Clara to sort of emotionally manipulate herself into a position where she thinks she's his equal. He's allowed that to happen, so he's equally to blame. He has to be the one who rescues her. And so in rescuing her, and the only way he can do it is by using Time Lord technology to take her out at the instant of her death. Mm. In rescuing her, he breaks all these laws and boundaries, but he, in order to do that, he needs to be in an emotional place such that he can't be talked around and he can't be physically sort of taken out of that situation. A kind of a, he has to see it through. Mm. There's a kind of a symmetry between Heaven Sent, that's the that's the one where he's chipping through the wall, isn't yes. it? Yes. There's a symmetry between Heaven Sent and the name of the Doctor. They're very similar stories in the sense that they both take place over an unfeasible amount of time. They both end with essentially the discovery of the Time Lords and they both end with ultimately a moment where a character gets resurrected. In Name of the Doctor, it's the Doctor and in Heaven Sent, Hell Bent, it's Clara. Yes. But this is where the, they make a distinction between the different Doctors. So the Matt Smith Doctor, his version of, of toiling through eternity is being with loads of families and having sort of surrogate grandchildren and helping villagers do whatever. Time of the Doctor, yeah. Whereas Capaldi's version of that is being on his own in a really gloomy castle, being chased around by this sort of skeletal skeletal figure and being killed a lot. Mm. And so there's a kind of a... The the two are sort of of tied thematically, but it's the differences that, that kind of tell you what what the difference in Doctors are. Well, this is what Stephen Moffat does. Actually, the fan show, third part of their interview with him, came out a week or so ago as we record. Oh. And in that, he's one of the questions is, have you got any more ideas for Doctor Who? Or any ideas that you haven't used? And he says, no, I've got no ideas that I haven't used because as soon as I have an idea, I use it. Mm-hmm. Which doesn't necessarily mean the next episode, but obviously means at some point during the season in production or the one that's about to go into production. And the thing is, then what he'll do is he'll use an idea, and then somewhere further down the line, he'll think, well, hang on, I could have used that idea in a completely different way. Mm. And when people say he's repeating himself, he's using the same ideas in completely different ways, generally. Yeah, and that's what genre is. I mean, genre is repeating, yes. repeating the same ideas, but hopefully in a slightly different way. Or in a way that's so perfect, you think that is the purest form of that yeah. idea possible. Anyway, go back to Hellbent. Obviously, then the sci-fi thing kicks in, where you've heard about this hybrid all the way through the series. And patently, at the end of that story, because if you look at the 12 episodes in total and look at the story that's being told, the one that I've just explained patently the thing that's a danger to the universe is if the Doctor should ever get Clara's heart beating again, then she will be free of having to go back to Trap Street and then you get, you know, essentially the situation you saw in Father's Day where time, where an event that has already happened isn't kept Mm. and thus time falls apart. We also saw it in Wedding of River Song, right? 
Okay. And, you know, we saw how worked up about it the Doctor and everybody gets in Waters and Mars. Mm. So there's a, there's a recurring theme in Doctor Who, and that's what Hal Bent addresses, the fact that these characters have engineered, not deliberately, but have engineered this situation where they become the threat to the universe. Because if the Doctor and Clara carry on in one another's company, he will keep trying to get her heart started, and if he should ever succeed, there goes the universe. So it's, it's basically the same dilemma as you get in Time Flight, only there's slightly more appetite for going back to Clara than there was for going back to Adric. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, but basically, yeah. And so, actually, and people moaned about that, oh, she gets to carry on. She gets to be reborn. She gets to come back to life or whatever. Mm. But he picks her up before she dies. That's, I've said it before, it's no different to going back to see Churchill. Because if the TARDIS is in 2018, Churchill's dead, right? Mm -hmm. But if it goes back to 1938, Churchill's alive. Well, that's all you've really had with Clara's character in Hellbent. Although it's unusual in Doctor Who. So in Doctor Who, there's a kind of an unwritten rule that characters like Churchill, that's fine, you visit them. Yeah, yeah. But characters like the Brigadier... Once, once if their character's in Doctor's personal timeline or his personal life, once they've died, then you don't, go, kind back. Of, you don't yeah. go back. So this is one of those rare moments where yeah, that's exactly. why that's why it's such a sort of momentous, momentous thing. Yeah, it's kind of kind of uniqueness to it. But it's yeah. one of those things where apart from River, River Song, but that's you know well that's, that's kind entirely the other way yeah. around, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, but it's kind uh, but it's kind of incumbent upon people who write programmes like Doctor Who, if you've got a time machine, you kind of have to do that story once mm. because that's a story that needs to be told at some point. Yeah. So, I mean, Doctor Who could have carried on without telling that story at any point. Yeah. But you can't complain when they do tell that story because that story begs to be told. And in fact, it begged to be told in, twi- in Time Flight, right? Yeah, or the TV movie as well. Yeah, as an element of that, but as that's an, element, that's an yeah. uncomfortable moment in the TV movie because well, that's... it's not. It's sort of the Doctor shouldn't be a kind of a resurrector. So here, the Doctor brings someone well, in... doesn't bring someone back to life. But... They don't really with Captain Jack, though, don't they? So that that kind of bending of the rules is already. Yeah, in... but the Doctor doesn't do that. The Doctor's no, the doctor's but I'm just saying that about that. But yeah, in as do, much as the yeah. Doctor, the the show's own uh, logic, mm. it, yeah. it works. Yes. And the reason the TV movie does what it does is because it's American and Superman the movie was still very much in the public consciousness. Mm. So basically it just repeats the end of that. But with Captain Jack it wasn't it wasn't the Doctor travelling in time no. that saved him. So characters can become immortal in Doctor Who. That's mm. not breaking the rules. It's mm. a doctor it's that moment going it's... back and yeah. saving someone from from death. That's in his personal life. It's that mm. moment at the start of Time Flight where Nissa and Tegan say, you've got to go back and pick him up from that spaceship before he dies. And Peter and Davison the says, comes up with you've got to be kidding! Yeah, Peter yeah. Davison comes up with a rubbish <laughs> reason. <laughs> other than, no, his contract's ended. Yeah, <laughs> it's not going to happen. Yeah. Um, so... Oh, it had. I suppose it, it kind of happened. <laughs> kind of happened with Perry. Except it wasn't the doctor that saved Perry, it was, it was the, the scriptwriters and the producer that Yeah. But and yeah, and actually she never died because oh yeah. well, I don't know. She seemed to die, but the things that we're seeing in Mind Warp aren't supposed to be true well, no creations nobody, nobody anyway. knows what's true in Mind Warp. No. Least of all the writer and the people mm-hmm. in Mind Warp and But the the explanation they give at the end of Mind Warp is that Yakarnos, she goes off and marries him. Yeah. So presumably yeah. he saves her. So presumably she never did die, and we only see that to manipulate the doctor in coming to the did, trial room or whatever. Where does it describe her as managing Yakarnos's wrestling career? Is in that the in the books? books? I think so. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Not one I've read. Is that, so. is that Pip and Jane Baker? No, <laughs> Pip and Jane Baker didn't do any of the. Oh, no, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, no. Was it one of the novelizations? It's probably the Ultimate yeah. Foe. Could have been. Yeah, I thought it was in one of the new adventures, but no, you might I th- well be right. I think it sounds more of a new adventure thing, doesn't it? Or a Pippin Jane Baker thing? <laughs> no, I think that somewhere there might even be a big finish where we get to hear it. Okay. Okay. 
So I couldn't swear to it, but I don't know. I think there might it's be. definitely it's definitely a thing, and it's not. Yeah, I, I yeah. wouldn't I wouldn't have got it from Big Finish because it's definitely a thing that Big Finish would have got it from. But who knows? It might be that you've read about it rather than Possibly. reading it. Possibly. Who knows? If you'd like to write in, <laughs> no. Well, anyway, then we get to series ten, don't mm. we? So the Christmas special in between series nine. And series 10 is the one that brings back or introduces rather Nardol, mm-hmm. which is going to be significant. In fact, Nardol's in two Christmas specials in a row, isn't he? Yeah. Because the one immediately after series 9 is the um, River Song one, where we finally Husbands see the end of River Song. Husbands of River Song. Yeah. Where we finally yeah. See... So Nardol's in that. And then you go a year without Doctor Who. Yes. And then you get Nardole in the very next one too, because he's been picked up for the series. So that's a little bit like um, the Catherine Tate situation, but without the Martha year in between. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so series 10, story arc. There's not really an arc <laughs> for once. I mean, there's the monks thing there's in the a middle. a mini, messy one, isn't there? Yeah. But it's... It's kind of bubbling along in the background. Yeah. But, yeah. but it's... But it's um, yeah, and it's the it's the nature of how it was written and why it was written, and the kind of yeah. So it was always the sort of emergency season mm. tacked on because Chibnall couldn't wasn't ready yet. Yeah. So so there's not really for but what I mean is for Pearl Mackey's character because generally series one with Rose and the bad wolf thing Rose is the bad wolf. Mm. Uh, series four, Donna is the meta crisis. Series five, Amy is her memories that the monsters use to engineer the Pandorica. Series nine, it's Clara who it transpires has caused the situation of the hybrid. Mm. So ordinarily, there'd be a connection between the sci-fi arc story and the character arc story, in that the companion would be going on a journey. And somehow that journey would tie in with the sci-fi stuff by the end of the series. Mm. And at the end of the series, Pearl Mackey's character gets turned into a Cyberman. Yeah. And at the end of that story, it's resolved by going back to the first episode mm. and having the return of the mm. uh, pilot. Yeah. But actually, Pearl Mackey's character doesn't really have a journey during that no. series. It, it you kind could... of starts, doesn't it? And then it doesn't really lead to anything. Well, you could show Eaters of Light as the second episode and Smile as the tenth. Yeah. And other than the fact that Smile's got all that stuff about it, this is your first sort of real yeah. visit to a planet. But actually, the stories themselves, mm. where the character is, other than that, it's the first visit, there's not really a great deal of difference. And I said it at the time, we see it most obviously in Oxygen, where they turn up and Nardol says, well, it's not very good here, we really ought to leave. And Pearl Mackey says, yeah. And that's at a point after mm. thin ice at which you ought to have learned. No, that's not well, how we do things. But I kind of, but I wasn't disappointed by that. Well, I'm not talking because, about whether it's good no, or bad. I know, but uh, but uh, the fact that I wasn't disappointed is interesting because I think it's it's a different sort of way of making it, and it's slightly more traditional. It's slightly more old school. Oh, yeah, Doctor yeah, yeah. Who. So just for one season to see to see kind of throwaway adventures like Thin Ice, I really loved. Mm. And I loved it because it had no, it had no connection to any story arc. It was just, and it almost didn't have any science fiction elements. No, almost. It was just a really straightforward story, and I've got a lot of fondness. The Empress of Mars. I've got quite a lot of fondness for for that one. So well, it's sort yeah, of you know, if you want, <laughs> yeah. And that, and Pearl Mackey, and I'm, I'm not sure the character was as developed as some of the others, and she didn't have as much import. But the way it was performed, yes, was just sort of carried it and held it, so that by the time she is converted into a Cyberman, you kind of really feel it, yeah, yeah, yeah. because she's been this sort of character that's been swept along rather than she hasn't got a purpose necessarily. She's just she's just being. In fact, the the thing I wanted with Pearl Mackey was for her to finish her degree, which is. She's, you know, well, in terms of she started it, in terms of the story, Nardole carries more purpose than Pearl Mackey does, yeah. doesn't he? Yeah. Because he he's part of the whole Missy thing that's going on. Yeah. So the Missy thing is a thing that's going on at the same time, 
but it's going on very much at the same time rather than as part of the same storyline. Hmm. And so we see in the first episode that he's got this thing hidden and it's got somebody in it and then we hear the piano and all this kind of stuff. He doesn't leave it hanging too long. No, episode no. six is where well, we find out. I think he realises that actually it's going to be a, it's going to be missing and it's going to be an anticlimax because yeah. it's missing. If it had been the first Doctor in, well, in the box, then, <laughs> then that would have been that well, would yeah. have been a real twist. But he didn't know he was doing twice no, upon a time no, until after he'd written series ten. But imagine that. Oh well, my suggestion was that it would have been John Sims Master, but the way yeah. we got introduced to John Sims okay. Master yeah. was a lot more satisfying, yes. yeah. really. Yeah. yeah, I think he. I think he says, right, we'll set this thing going. But the story he really wanted to tell was the story of Missy actually repenting properly. Hmm. So we saw Missy in Series 9. I didn't mention that as we were going through Series 9. We see her at the start. It's my understanding that she was supposed to turn up at the end again. Right. So we get a few lines of dialogue at the end of Series 9 in Hellbent where they talk about... I think... It's Missy reveals that she was the one who put them together at the start of the series. Right. Or is that at the end? Anyway, the point is Missy puts them together because obviously she knows the legend of the hybrid, Hmm. even though we've not heard about it yet, and she's engineering it. Yeah. So she chooses Clara because she sees, presumably, somebody who has the capacity within them to want to be like the Doctor and kind of second guesses what's going to happen. Anyway, the point is... Missy turns up with a confession dial at the start of series nine, gives it to the doctor, who assumes his time must who assumes his time must be up. And then when he realizes it isn't, realizes that she's given it to him for some other reason, right. still has it in Face the Raven and therefore well, realizes that that's where he's gone at some point during Heaven Sent. But the point is Missy Having, in Series 8, wanted to be the Doctor's friend, but misunderstood how you can go about that. In Series 9, her story was supposed to be, so she gets her revenge by giving... by giving, Having tried to give the Doctor something she thought he wanted, but it turns out didn't in Series 8. In Series 9, it transpires she's given him something that he did want, but it's going to transpire, is going to be a danger to the entire universe, mm. i.e. Clara. And then in series 10, we get a story for Missy where she really does want to repent of it's, her past and become a different person. It almost says more about the Doctor. Because what that what that story is, so, so Missy being held trapped by the Doctor is a kind of realisation of what John Sims' master said when he was dying in the stubbly arms of, of David Tennant, that is, what are you going to do? Just keep me in the TARDIS like a pet. Mm. And this is and this is what the Doctor does to Missy. And I think at this stage, the Doctor knows who he is. The Doctor knows what a good Time Lord should be. And so the Doctor is evangelising. Yes. And almost, but he's almost doing it as a, as a kind of an experiment. He's almost trying to shape... The worst time lord he can he can find, and trying to get them to, to follow this kind of religion of of being a good, a good doctor, being a good time lord, and he doesn't quite manage it. Well, because if there's one way in which uh, Pearl Mackey's character, Bill, can I say I've been trying to remember what she's called for about <laughs> the last fifteen minutes, if there's one way in which Bill does impact upon that storyline, it's that she essentially. Not directly, but indirectly, causes the Doctor to advance the point in the experiment at which mm. Missy comes out of the box and yeah. gets given a tryout. And you can see from the tryout, she she understands the theory. So it's that moment in what's what's the story of the first uh, well the first part time. of time. Yeah, you can see that she understands what the Doctor would say in these situations, but she's saying it in a kind of a in a kind of a slightly disjointed and abstract way. Well, she so understands what, but she hasn't yeah. got into the habit. Yeah. So she's the doctor yet. on the surface, but when it comes to it, you're not quite sure if she's... It's gone all the way down. Yeah. yeah. It's a bit like Phil Collins doing charity work. 
<laughs> You're talking nonsense. <laughs> the great thing about that is that it's the ultimate tragedy in that she probably would have picked up the habits mm. if she hadn't bumped into herself yeah. on her first try out of the box. Yeah. Right. Much so, like the Doctor bumps into himself in, in, Day the next of the, in Day of the Doctor and also in the next episode. Oh, I see and the, the, whenever the Doctor bumps into his self in the new series, he learns something about himself. And she learns something about herself. And it's that, you know, maybe being bad is a good thing. Well, just, but then you get yeah. that sort of ambiguity. You don't quite know... Well, we know yeah. that if ever that character turns up again, it's not going to be a goodie. No. So that was that was a one-off story, and it was a really brilliant tragedy. And mm. I thought that was a... Again, I, I don't know where he plugs them from, but I think Stephen Moffat keeps finding stories worth telling. Mm. about, and it's, and it's about the characters that are already in the toy box. You know, there, he's not fishing around outside the sand pit for stories to tell. He's telling worthwhile stories about the characters he's already got. The Is Doctor, it? the companion, inverted commas, doesn't matter which one it is. The Master. Well, his method seems to be questioning. So he, question, yeah, yeah. he questions what the companion's there for. He yes. quest, And then within, within the cycles of the different companions, he questions who Clara is, what her motivation is, almost each season. He then questions what the Doctor is multiple times yes. and finds different ways to break down what the Doctor is um, because the Doctor is a simple character but really complex at the same time. And he does the same thing with the Master. He does the same thing with Davros. So he's constantly he's constantly asking the question, what is this character for? Who is this character? Why do they do what they do? And finds different ways of kind of deconstructing them. And I think, yeah. go on. I was going to say, you could also argue that he questions... Who the audience is? Yeah, in deep yeah. breath. Yes, yeah. I think he does it all the time. Mm. I think that's part of what the Barn trilogy is about—the relationship between the series and the audience. And what, yeah, what the series is. Mm. The, the, I, th- I think this is why Stephen Moffat's Doctor Who is contentious, not because of the humour, not because keep people keep coming back to life, not because certain story themes and tropes keep repeating themselves, but because. Prior to Russell T. Davis, nobody really had asked questions of Doctor Who. Because, and we've talked about this, I'm sure, but Doctor Who's a continuing series for 26 years. And when something's continuing, it doesn't really pause to look at itself. No, I was going to say self-aware. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's when you get that 15-year gap that the self-awareness arises because the people who are going to go on to make it who were fans of those first 26 years, have got nothing to do during those 15 years, but question what the programme and the characters are all about. So when Russell T. Davis brings it back, he asks some of those questions in a quite moderate way. Mm. And then when Stephen Moffat takes over, because Stephen Moffat's past history has always been telling stories about characters who ask questions of themselves whether directly in the dialogue or just through their actions. But that's what his Jekyll was about. It was about a Jekyll who's asking... Or Jekyll, sorry, Matt. No, no, Jekyll's fine. I've, I've converted. It's fine. Stephen Moffat's Jekyll is about a Jekyll who's questioning his place in the universe. Mm. Uh, and this is what he does in Doctor Who. It's, it's what Stephen Moffat's always done. It's why when you get to the Big Bang at the end of Series 5, all of a sudden you're down to five characters instead of, you know, 15 or whatever you'd normally get in a finale. Stephen Moffat's modus operandi is to take the regulars and tell stories about them rather than just telling stories that feature them. And I think that's why a lot of classic series fans probably look at it and say, well, this isn't the Doctor Who I know. They might not be able to put a finger on necessarily why, but they can tell that there's something different, I Mm, suppose. mm. I'm obviously generalising, and I probably sound a bit condescending, and that's not the intention. But I think that happens, and I think that's one of the major reasons for it. And it's not about... And the reason it can be done again and again is it's not about the answer. And in fact, the answer is... The answer is always prosaic. I'm a madman with a box, or yeah. I'm an idiot, 
or I'm just a good person. Those aren't, we ask who is the doctor and you'll never get the answer. You won't get Longbarrow as an answer never. because Longbarrow is, is I really like Longbarrow, but you can do it once and it's kind of like the story killer. It's the mood killer because that's where you find out exactly who the doctor is. But if you find out the doctor is a good, as a madman with a box or a good person, then you can keep on asking the questions. It's about the process of asking the questions and the process of deconstructing <laughs> the doctor, because the deconstruction of the doctor is the jeopardy in the drama that, that they're creating. And, and so you can do, Chibnall can keep on doing this. Yeah. And this is the way of making uh, the doctor as a mystery. Well, this is what Stephen Moffat does. He opens the engine up, he takes all the parts out, he looks at all the parts, he asks what all the parts are, where they fit, what they do, and then he puts them all back into exactly the same places as they were before. Yeah, it's just, and it's as if it, nothing isn't it beautiful. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But that's what he does. And, mm-hmm. you know, maybe the Doctor's Wife is probably the perfect metaphor for all the arcs and stories that Stephen Moffat's told because it's the bit where we get to see the engine on the screen and then at the end of the episode, the engine goes back inside the box and everything continues exactly as it had before. Mm. Anything more on any of the arcs? I'm planning, maybe in a couple of weeks, to come back and do an episode just looking at some of the smaller arcs, such as the monk thing, okay. as individual things. Okay. Sort of smaller three-episode arcs that aren't necessarily tied to the bigger ones. But on the bigger Stephen Moffat arcs, is there I think we've ringed everything out of that. There's that big overall arc, overall of Capaldi's seasons, isn't there? Yeah. yeah. Plus, I mean, we spoke about all this stuff as these episodes went out mm. at great length. But I just thought it was an idea to sit down here and do mm. it all in one go. Mm. Right. Not sure what's happening next week then. And if we get no better ideas, or if I get no better ideas, we'll probably come back and do the mini arc thing, but I think we should leave it for a couple of weeks, so we'll try and think of something else to do. Until then... I was Simon. I was Matt. And I was JR. And we'll speak again soon.